We're continuing our series thinking about who we are and identity, and we're going to start with our leader and his identity. Uh, Mr. Boris Johnson at the moment has got a dilemma, I think, at the moment. Let me spell the dilemma out for you in kind of tabloid fashion. All of the people who vote for him um, and keep him in office, keep him in a job, have um, homes that are warmed by and machines and cars that operate largely by um, gas and oil. I think that's, uh, you could agree with that. Um, now, one of his main suppliers, it turns out, has been, um, there are many words you could use for this moment, but I guess unscrupulous, unfavorable at the moment. So we have an issue with supply, but Mr. Boris Johnson's dilemma is further confused, I guess, as you look around and you see his other options. Where else will he go um, to get his oil? And the more he looks around, I guess, the more we see that some of the other suppliers, maybe as well, um, maybe they've been unscrupulous as well or are questionable. His dilemma is, how does he keep his job? Seems to always be Boris's dilemma, doesn't he? How does he keep his job? How does he keep, how does he keep us warm, his job, and his moral integrity? Can he have all of those um, things? I think his, the heart of the dilemma comes, and one of the things we've been thinking about recently is that identity is critical for us, for human flourishing. We need to find out who we are. And one of the things I think we know is one of the key ways that we identify is by our view of morality, what we think is right or wrong. And in a sense, we need him. He needs, um, he needs to keep his morality in this moment, and we need him also to keep his morality in this moment. So here's the dilemma. Let me spell it out for you. How do you get a moral identity that allows you to look in the mirror, um, to consider ourselves as a nation, um, progressive, democratic, um, you know, intelligent, moral, given the unfavorable realities in the world that we live in. I think one of the things that this moment in our world shows us, and it's really, I prefer and I guess we realize in this moment, it's easier to look up at our leaders and throw eggs at them and like be relieved that they've got to face the moral crisis. But I think one of the things that this moment has shown us, and maybe it's taken like two million fleeing Ukrainians to get us to think about it, but this, in a sense, is all of our questions. It's all of our dilemmas. This is a real dilemma for, for every single one of us. One of the things that we're becoming aware of, isn't it, that our banks and our big cities are funded by and flooded with money that we might not think is favorable. Our football clubs that we love, I guess we've got Chelsea at the moment, but probably there are others who are funded by things that are questionable. And I guess we could go on if we were to look hard enough into the things that fuel us, the stuff that we buy, our gadgets, our produce, even from the supermarket, even simple things, we'd see that there is a moral dilemma that runs down to us as well. And the circumstances that we are in mean that we need the stuff, and yet we've got this question that hangs over us. Can we, can we, have, the, can we have the stuff 
And can we also keep our moral integrity at the same time? This question opens this up, even this question. This text uh, that um, Debole has read out for us unpacks this even more for people who would identify as people of faith. It shows us our own identity crisis and our own identity um, dilemma. It's the story of a people who are called to a moral identity and who are tied to the temple to keep that moral identity. That's where they find, that's where they find out who they are. That's where they connect with the God. That's where they understand their morality and their sense of self. And yet, as they go to this temple, what do they find in the text? I wonder if we could have a few of those verses up on the screen, particularly verse 12 through 17. The temple, where these people get their identity and where they connect, has just been completely abused. So what would happen is um, people would go along and bring their sacrifices to connect with their God. They bring their sacrifices, they'd spend time worshipping with their God. And what's happening as they rock up there and as they get there the priests, Hophni and Phineas, have just seemed to have forgotten all morality and all sense of self and everything like that. And as soon as they see their food coming, because that's what you would do, you would bring food to sacrifice. As soon as they see the food coming, they're grabbing it for themselves. Do you see that in the text? They're just, it's just become a, like a barbecue. It's become like a drop-off food thing for them. I don't know sort of what health state they were in, because people come with sacrifice all the time, but they have totally forgotten uh, the moral appropriateness of this moment. And they would just, they'd see people come in and they'd just say, you need to give us something for our food. But it was more than that. The story goes on. And I think it's kind of escalatory. I think we're supposed to see the demise and the decline of what's going on at the temple. Do you see what happens? The women who are working at the front of the temple, verse 22, these two guys have turned the temple essentially into, I don't know, like a sex shop, a brothel, Something like that. Now, can you imagine uh, the nation at this point, this nation who are trying to, they're, they're, their point in their history is, and it's the story of Samuel, is they're trying to understand who they are. They're trying to find themselves. And the way that they've got to connect uh, with who they are and their morality and their God is the temple. And every time they rock up at the temple, they see corruption. How, 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 are they, how on earth are they supposed to find their moral self here? This, this, story, um, this story is our story in some respects. This story, obviously it's our story because it's in the Bible, but it's the story of the church. I was watching a film uh, recently. I don't know if you've seen a film called Spotlight. It's um, a story about a bunch of journalists. Um, I think they're based in Boston over in America, and it's the early... Um, uncovering of the scandal of the Catholic priests and what was going on, the sexual abuses that were going on over in the church. It's about a bunch of journalists who just start to pick up on this story. They just start to get to the bottom of it. And as I'm watching it as a Christian who finds his hope and identity in the church, part of me is watching it saying, oh man, I hope they catch, I hope they get them all. And as I, and, and as I want that, that thing at the same time, I really feel like the rug is being pulled out from under my feet as I realize that what I think is my moral identity has been pulled away at. It's a reality, I think, for us, of all people on earth. We're called to a moral identity in a God. 
can we have that moral identity? This is the question over the talk, and it'd be a, it'll be a short talk, don't worry. How do you get a moral identity that allows us to look in the mirror, to think of ourselves as people who are on a good journey, on a positive journey, given the realities of the world around us, given the world that we live in? So I think I um, just want to identify a few factors in this moral identity search, a few things that I think are important for us, important for us to think about. The first one is how we see darkness. So I've got three points. Hold them if you want something to hang, hang your thoughts on about what I've said. Three points. How we see darkness. How we view darkness. One of the strategies that we've learned as human beings to survive in this dilemma in this push-me-pull-me dilemma, is to identify what we are not. It's one of the things that, it's it's like a survival tactic, I think, that we've learned to save us. So one of the things that we do is that we say that we are, we see evil, we see the baddies. It's one of the ways that we look at the world, one of the ways that we identify is, right, I see that that person's bad, and I see that I'm not that person, therefore, I'm okay. I'm less bad. We see this in all sorts of ways. I think I'll pick two that you can sort of just connect with, particularly in, I think, kids, toddlers, kids, and things like that. We see it in them. Um, it's, you, it's, it's a, they're great, and my kids are a bit more grown up now, and they don't do this kind of stuff anymore, but there was a time when you could come into the kitchen and catch them mid-argument, and it was wonderful because they'd just be like destroying each other. And when, when you'd sort of pull it apart, the defense that they'd give to you would be basically their not that they are good or that they've got a good sense of self or that they've got ambition, but just that they're less corrupt than the other one. That would be the defense. And it would, that, they would sort of tear each other apart. And it would just basically be how I can get away with this is by, and I've, this is great because I see like connecting with some of the kids who are going, yes, I think I might have done this a few times. I've just realized what I've been doing. The other people that do it, and it's really obvious, in, are the politicians. I try and stay connected with politics. I try and watch it. Um, and Prime Minister's question time on a Wednesday, and I, I try to engage with it, I feel like I've got to be aware, but then I hear often the defense for the way that they're doing, and it's basically just, well, you're worse than us, and you did this when you were in power, and that's worse than what we did, and then it would come back the other way. Well, actually, no, you were worse than us. It's, ne- it's not often, oh, well, we're standing for this, and we're standing for this, and we're going to do this. It's often just like who can grab the moral higher ground, or who can stay the highest. If you look at the text, if you give, if you, if you like do a Bible reading and you sort of flick through this text and you get there quite quickly, if you identify Hophni and Phineas and you see what they're doing, they're having sex with women in the temple, immediately you can go to a quite an easy place that just says, oh, they're the baddies. They're the baddies and I'm not the baddies. So that I can deal with chapter two of one Samuel and go, they're the baddies. It's not me. Therefore, I can park it. I don't think This system that we've got, and I'd say that I think we've, this is a common system. It's a system that we use. I've highlighted kids and politicians. I think we all use this system. I don't think that it, I think the problem with it is that it doesn't fix the identity question. It doesn't fix the moral identity question, does it? We don't have moral leaders just because they say, well, I've turned less blind eyes to bad things than the other guy. That doesn't make them moral. We don't have moral identity in our kids because they say, 
Well, I only pull out hair. I would never eye gouge another person. We don't look at that and think, oh, that's morality. The problem with just identifying somebody worse than you is that it doesn't give us a moral identity. And this is the, as I look around and as I see the dilemma that we have and how, the, how Boris and others are going to resolve this and how we are going to resolve this, it's almost like you look and go, well, I just need to find somebody that's worse than me. Doesn't work, I don't think. But I don't think that's what the text says. I don't think we should read that text and just let ourselves off with, hey, those are the bad guys. We need to read that text and see what darkness is. See what evil looks like. The text says to us, and try and have as much of that story sort of going through your mind as is physically possible. Look at the way in which things that are meant for good, uh, the sacrifice, the temple, people coming to God, priests making interventions, drawing the people back to God. Look at the way that things that are meant for good can actually become evil things. Look at how easy that happens. And you can look at any of our recent inventions, the internet, nuclear power, whatever else. Look at the things that, that should be good, that could be good. And look how easily, look how blooming easily, to use a Yorkshire expression, look how easily they can be flipped for evil. Look how easily that can happen. Look how dark it gets. Man alive, look at our world. Look how dark it gets. The text says to us, look how dark it gets when people get corrupted, when power is abused. Look how easily, see in this text, it's ridiculous. Look how easily evil worms its way in. Eli's looking on, he sees his two lads, and it's like he, he goes, right, I'll have a word with them. I'll call them out. But it just feels like they've decided this is how it's going to go. Look how easily it takes over. It maybe like starts off with them just kind of neglecting who they are in God and moving on quickly to church, the temple becoming a brothel. Look how, look how evil, how easily evil gets in. And think for yourself in your own life. How quickly it can get dark, how quickly you can go off track, how easy that is. Consider in the text, not just the two bad guys, but how much, look at how ruined Israel is because of these two people. Consider how evil, it's not just the other people, but it's just the flood, like the cancer can permeate everybody. To see evil is not just to see it in others, but it's to see its ruinous work. One of my favorite films and a favorite film of the preachers, I think Boydie and Paul often go to the film Batman. One of the reasons we go to the film Batman is because of its baddie insights. It's not just, I mean, it's probably half because we love Batman and that kind of stuff, but it's also because it gives us an insight into what the baddies are like. There's this amazing mo moment, not in the most recent film, I've not seen that yet, but in the Joker, where they've got the Joker and he's been judged and he's been assessed. And he looks at them in a brilliant, Heath Ledger just steals the show in this film. And he looks at them and he says to them, I'm not a monster, I'm just ahead of the curve. It's a brilliant quote, it's a brilliant moment in the film. I'm not a monster, I'm just ahead of the curve. He says, I see evil. I know what evil is, and I'm not it. I'm like you. I'm just further down that ruinous road. I'm just further down that road of darkness.
His message is, I guess, I'm a bit of a casualty of this messed up world. His message is, I guess, this could happen to me. It could perhaps happen to any of us. First way for us to think about moral identity in this world is how we see darkness, how we make our assessment of evil. So often, my first point of call is just to isolate the bad guy. Look at that idiot. Look at that person. That's the bad guy. It's so easy to do that as you look around. They're so obvious, particularly at the moment, the bad guys. And yet the message in the Bible, every bad guy that you come across has got like a Batman critical past. And they all say to us, you need to look more deeply in your total assessment. Yes, identify the bad guy, but also see the mess of sin. That's what this story is about. It's not just about bad guys. It's about the mess of sin. First pointer. Second one to think about is how you see God in the darkness. Not just how you see the darkness, but how you see God in the darkness. A question that you might have at the moment, a legitimate question, I think, is where, where is God? Like, where is God in all this? And like, if we're all supposed to find him, why would he, why would he go about stuff like this? Why would, why would we even have to be in a dilemma? Why do we have to have baddies. Where is God in all this? I need to tell the tale of this text, and I'm going to try and do it as quickly and as concisely as I can, because this verse uh, 27 through to the end of chapter, this is a, like, you want to go back and read this over. This is worth dwelling on, but take a deep breath, like have a gaviscon or something like that as you read through this, because crikey, this is murder, this passage. Hophni and Phineas, just before we get to this passage in the text, so I don't know if we can have 27 and onwards up. They've, you know, they've messed things up in the temple, Eli's been into his kids and he's tried, I don't know if he just tried once, but he's tried and failed to correct them. And, and generally, Israel, like it's grim. I think chapter three starts by saying it's dark. There's not been many visions. The word of the Lord is rare, that kind of thing. It's a dark outlook. And God's appointed people aren't behaving very well. Then the man of God comes, deep breath. And as this book is written, we're supposed to see it. I, of all, you know, of all the books in the Bible, some books really expect us to see the picture and feel the narrative. The man of God comes and he gives what is like a blood and thunder. Should, if you're really a Christian and you believe in God and you believe in his living word, you should read this like a million times. It should keep you up. You should try and wrestle with this over and over again, over and over again. And he says um, to Eli, he says, we've met from God says to Eli, You've, you and your ancestors have met me. You know what I'm like. You met me in Egypt. I think it's verse 27. Remember what God was like in Egypt? Remember what he did? Remember how he didn't stand for any hassle? Remember how he intervened? Remember how powerful he was? Remember how he was their savior? Remember how he got them back on track? Remember how he redeemed them? Remember how holy and perfect he is. Remember the way that he takes care of things? He says to Eli, you know who I am. You've met me before, and I picked, this is what he says in verse 28, he says, I picked your family, your descendants, to be the gatekeepers of who I am. You're the way that the people are gonna connect with who I am. You're the way that the people are gonna find their identity. You, your family, I chose you. We met each other, you saw how powerful I was, and I chose you, and yet given all of that information, what you've decided to do 
with my temple and my ways is just abuse it completely and lead the people down a garden path. This is what he says to them. Verse 30 to 36. Take a deep breath. Hang on, God's word's good. He says to them, I know I promised that your family would do this, that, and the other, but seeing the way that you're carrying on, and there's no other way to say this, I'm taking them out of the equation. See Hophni and Phineas? They're not going to be anymore. In fact, your whole family line, they won't be in any positions of power anymore. And to sort of paraphrase, their journey will be a difficult one. They're going to suffer. They're going to see difficult things. And by the, end, by the end of it, when you get to verse 36, you realize the whole thing's flipped. And what God's saying to them is, by the end of all this, in a few generations' time, you're going to wish, you're going to give your right arm that you could be back in a position where you could get food at the temple. That station's going to be way above you. You're not going to be nowhere near that. How do we deal? Like that is, it's a, some of the Old Testament stuff, man, take a deep breath, it's brutal. This story is a brutal story. How do we surmise that? Let me surmise that chapter for you just so you can remember it. If the people can't see God because of the priests, if the people can't see God because of the priests, then God will take away the priests. But realize and see what he's doing in verse 35. Check out verse 35 for the hope that is ours. God says to us in verse 35, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what's in my heart and mind. I'll firmly establish his priestly house and they'll minister before me for always. God says of the priests that are stopping the people seeing God, he says, I'm gonna make it so you're out of the picture because the most important thing is that the people get to see their God. And he says to them, I'm gonna raise up a priest. Listen to what he says about this priest. He's not gonna throw them off track He's not going to confuse them. He's not going to lead them down into a deeper dilemma. He's going to show them what. What's this priest going to do? He's going to show them God's heart. That's the job of the priest. Do you know what this story is? Do you know where this story points us? What other unpalatable story can you think of that centers in the Bible? The story of Hophni and Phinehas and their dealings and the need of God to be seen by the people. And the way that God says, I'm gonna get a priest so that the people can see my heart. This is the story of the cross. This is a pointer to the story of the cross. We look at the cross and we go, if we really look at it, if we don't just like see the necklaces that you can wear, if we don't just see it through sort of rose-tinted spectacles, if we actually look at it, the baby's born. The baby comes at Christmas, the beautiful baby, we celebrate the beautiful baby, lives the perfect life, yet what happens? He goes to the cross. It's just the most unpalatable story, perhaps the most unpalatable story ever told, unless, unless you consider the mess of sin, unless you consider the hardness of human hearts, unless you consider the way people have been led away from God, unless you consider the fact that the main thing for God is that people get to have relationship 
with him. And for that, they need to see his heart. There's loads, there's loads for us to puzzle out about who God is. There's loads for us to make sense of. There's loads for us to wrestle with. And we might be wrestling with it until we come to our demise. We might be wrestling with who God is. Why does he let this happen? Why are we in these dilemmas? But what we do know and what we have seen is the priest. We've seen the way that God has intervened to bring the priest. We've seen God's heart for the people in the lives of the priest. When we look at Jesus, we see that God has not given up. We see in this picture the mess of the world. We see how it can come unstuck. We see the desperate need of people. And we see that God, in his graciousness, endures, keeps going and says, I'm going to find a way, and this is the story of Christianity, I'm going to find a way for these hard-hearted people, these people who get lost in sin really easy, these people who end up doing dark stuff, I'm going to find a way for these people to get back to me. And he sends us Jesus, the perfect priest. Let me just tell you and finish that point with this. He is at work in that same way is my conviction now. He looks at the mess. He looks at the dilemma that you and me are in. He looks at the wrestling match with sin. And he says, I am going to win you over. I am going to win you back to myself. I am going to show you good by showing you Jesus. I'm going to show you my heart. And I will do whatever it takes that you see it. Last point, really quick one. Factors in how we can find the moral identity search how we see darkness, how we see God in the darkness, and how we might see light. How we look at the light. The light that the Christian sees. It's not a light that floods. Maybe we want at times to think, oh, I could really do with the light to flood. I could really do to see really clearly the evidence of God and his goodness, and then I would believe. The light that God gives us, any time that I can find that you read about God's light in the Bible, he describes it as a light that is like a guide, a, a, a light in the darkness to guide the way that we can see. Do you see. Did you see it in this text? It's the main point of this text. I've not preached on it yet, but did you see where it was in this text when Debola read it? Can you think back on where God's light was? Did you notice it? You could read through that whole passage. It's so dark. It's really dark, that passage. You could read through that whole passage and miss it. And yet, let me just share a few verses with you. Verse 20 says, verse 18, sorry, says, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. So all this darkness and all this horrible stuff's going on and the temple's become a brothel. And this is the story really of Samuel and I believe the story of the Bible and God's light in the world. You've got all this horrible stuff going on and yet, can you imagine it? Hannah, been through all that drama, all that heartbreak to have a baby. She goes and gives him an ephod, white linen every year. And this young child is there in the middle of all that chaos 
And God says to us, even though it's dark, I'm going to carry on. Verse 26 says, again in the darkness, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with God and with the people. And you'll see this refrain coming right the way through this story. It's a picture that we're supposed to see. Verse 3, verse 1, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There was not many visions. There's this picture of darkness. It's so dark. And yet, this is the message. It's the message of 1 John. The light is there. God has shone his light and the darkness will not overcome against it. I don't know how much of the Ukraine news you can take at the moment. I don't know how much you can watch, but it's, it's dark, isn't it? Like it's just overwhelmingly sad and dark and it feels like it's the depths of human beings. And when I watch it, I think, man, the chances for hope and peace and joy and redemption and restoration, like where are they? And yet, watch the news for long enough, maybe watch it till the end, you'll see these lovely little lights, glimpses of light, even in that, even in that nation. I watched a clip, I don't know if they're still going, but there's a, a gentleman's running club. There was a guy in, the, in his 80s, lives in Kiev, and he said, I've been running for 60 years, I'm not stopping now. I'm not stopping now just because we're getting bombed. I watched the band of Kiev, um, as behind them is just getting decimated, playing every little thing's gonna be all right. Have you seen that clip? Have you seen the clip of them playing that? And you look at it and you think, it's so dark. But when you see the light, you see the light, you think, I am compelled, I cannot give up hope for you people. I cannot give up hope of restoration of what God's going to do. And as I look at these stories, I think probably I'd never have bothered about an old guy running around Kiev. I would never have seen the beauty of that before. I would never have been interested in a band playing Everything's Going to Be All Right. And yet when I see these little lights, I, in the middle of that darkness, man, I see a fresh... The, the amazing beauty of the human spirit. And I look at it and I go, well, man, anything is possible. Do you see what our hope is? It's dark. It's dark in this world. And yet God says to us, I have placed a light in this world. Think of the boy Samuel in the middle of the brothel, working away. Think of Jesus coming as a babe in a manger in possibly the darkest moment in human history. He says your hope of identity is not that every little thing is going to be all right in this moment. It is that I am continuing to work away in and amongst the chaos. There is good happening. And if you find it in Jesus, if you see it in Jesus, you will see it in the middle of the darkness. You will see the full gamut and the full beauty of God in a way that will mean you will never be able to live the same way ever again. You'll look at it and you'll think, man, how on earth did I miss that? It's the light in the darkness. It's our hope. Here's our dilemma. 
Can you have a moral identity that allows you to look in the mirror and consider yourselves progressive, moral, democratic, given the horrible circumstances? Do you know what I'd say? Yes. But only in Jesus. Yes. Definitely yes, but only in Jesus. Only if you're able to see who you are, who you really are, who you are created to be. Only if you're able to see evil for what it is, not just the bad guys, not just somebody that's not you, but something that can, like a cancer that can get hold of all of us, that would sweep through if it could and suffer us. Only if you stop to answer his call. It's a little light. You might well have missed it. But if you've seen it, it might just be able to change everything.